found actually happens is uh, smokers in particular will substitute what are known as illicit whites, which is to say illegal cigarettes that have been smuggled in from other localities, and they'll buy them on the black market. Uh, if you think of one word, it puts it all in perspective, prohibition. That voice you just heard was Father Ben Johnson, senior editor here at the Acton Institute. He's going to be talking today on Radio Free Acton on his article, uh, recent article on sin taxes. You may have seen that on acton.org. He's with us today to talk about it on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, welcoming you once again to Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute, and we've got a good edition for you today. Uh, in addition to Father Ben Johnson, we're going to have our Econ Quiz segment featuring Anne Bradley. She's an affiliate scholar here at the Acton Institute. Uh, she's going to be speaking with Carolyn Roberts about Amazon and why or why not Amazon is or is not the monopoly many people believe it may or may not be. That's confusing, but uh, Ann Bradley's going to uh, straighten all that out for us here coming up in just a little bit. Then Carolyn's going to be talking with Bruce uh, Edward Walker on our Upstream segment. Uh, she'll be talking with him about science fiction author Jerry Parnell, his relationship with Russell Kirk, and uh, his libertarian understandings that come through in his work. Uh, that will all be coming up in just a little bit here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Good to have you along today everybody, and uh, let's get to it here on Radio Free Acton. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and I'm here in the studio with Father Ben Johnson, who is a senior editor at the Acton Institute, as he came in for Acton's 27th annual dinner. Thank you for being with me today, Ben. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about a new commentary that you have recently written for the Acton blog. Um, you can see this commentary at acton.org slash publications slash commentary. And it's named Sin Taxes, The Nudge That Benefits Terrorism. Ben, can you explain a little bit more for us exactly how do sin taxes basically support terrorism? Because I think to most people, I mean, it seems like a tax on, for example, in this situation, cigarettes would help people to um, maybe put aside their smoking habits. How exactly does it benefit terrorism? Well, that is the intention behind these taxes, that the sin taxes are intended to raise the, the cost of uh, smoking so high that people will give it up. Uh, what uh, Pew Research found was when they interviewed people who had actually given up smoking, only 14% had ever cited cost as a concern. So uh, what really made people quit, uh, three-quarters of them said that it was health concerns. So uh, these sin taxes on tobacco, alcohol, and increasingly things like fossil fuels and fatty foods and things of that sort are intended to um, raise the cost so that people will quit. But what we found actually happens is uh, smokers in particular will substitute what are known as illicit whites, which is to say illegal cigarettes that have been smuggled in from other localities, and they'll buy them on the black market. Uh, if you think of one word, it puts it all in perspective, prohibition. You think of what happened in this country during uh, the years when we had prohibition, where alcohol was smuggled across uh, national borders from Canada through Seagram's or uh, moonshine stillaries that uh, uh, 
sold alcohol throughout the country, then you see that uh, that's, this is how it benefited gangsters at that time. In this country and around the world, uh, terrorists are heavily involved in this market of smuggling cigarettes. So, for example, one French think tank studied 15 different international terrorist organizations. They found that smuggling tobacco accounted for 20% of their overall budget. So if you think of one in five terrorists who were walking around, their money came as a result of the best of intentions, but it ended up funding the worst possible offenders. Do you think that in most cases, um, nudges that governments present always have a sort of negative um, converse reaction than they would have intended? Uh, there, there's always the unintended consequence or the unseen factor. Uh, when we use this term nudge, by the way, it's uh, come back into vogue here recently because of Richard Thaler. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics this year, University of Chicago economist, who along with Cass Sunstein wrote a book called Nudge. And the idea is that you can modify people's behavior by changing economic incentives. And we applaud them for recognizing that economics is human behavior. When you change economic incentives, behavior follows. But it doesn't always follow the intended course, and that's what's really important here. So, you know, the people who actually give up smoking, it's a very small percentage. Uh, AEI just released a paper on this. The American Enterprise Institute did a, a survey. They went to di 18 different cities throughout the world, and they interviewed people who were purchasing cigarettes, and they also looked at discarded cigarette packages. I think this is pretty exotic work for people who work in a think tank, going around looking at discarded cigarette packages on the street, picking up litter. But uh, what they found was 30% of the people they surveyed instead purchased illegal cigarettes instead of paying the tax. So, so the intention is, is obviously well-intended, but we know where that road leads. Is there any sort of small decline among smokers in purchasing cigarettes, or is it quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, so, so far, none of the studies that we've seen have looked at the actual overall level of smoking. But uh, what we've found is that, uh, as, as they say, the AEI study finds that one-third, 30% of all smokers simply switch to the black market. And they also found that the higher the tax, the more that black marketeers could charge. So, in other words, uh, people have a certain amount of uh, habit that they are in, that uh, they are required to do every day. People have a certain number of cigarettes they have to smoke in order to satisfy their addiction. And uh, so if cigarettes cost $13 a pack in New York City, someone can easily drive to Virginia or Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, truck those up I-95 and then sell them. And if the cost goes from $11 to $13, then the illegal cigarettes can go from 9 to 11 So uh, it, it's not known exactly how much uh, this has an impact on overall smoking, but what we know is that uh, uh, if people want to smoke, what is the most effective means of doing so is telling them about the health consequences. More than 75% of the people who were surveyed by Pew said it was either an impending health consequence, something that had happened to a relative, or something that had happened to them, and at this point it was too late. So do you think that um, maybe Thaler's uh, studies and insights on behavioral economics would have spurred Prime Minister David Cameron to uh, support those nudge units? It did. It was uh, David Cameron in 2010 actually brought Thaler in to the UK government to set up the nudge units uh, in question. And we have nudge units or had nudge units under the Obama administration in this country as well. Uh, Cass Sunstein played a role in the Obama administration trying to set up little economic incentives uh, for example, in the UK, uh, there's been a tremendous increase in uh, what they call the petrol tax, we call the gasoline tax. And uh, 
there was a, a move under Cameron to have everyone switch from regular gasoline to diesel. And now they've realized that diesel doesn't have uh, some of the carbon emissions, but it has a totally different kind of uh, problem when it comes to the environment. It, has, it releases different kinds of pollutants into the environment. And so now they're trying to get people to move away from diesel to electric uh, after they'd incentivize them. So it's always this unseen hand where people are, the government is always behind the curve when it comes to science, and they're trying to keep up with yesterday's science. By the time the policy goes into effect, new scientific studies have come forward. This is why it should be left to the free market. People are able to understand where their values uh, lie and where their behavior can affect that most effectively, certainly not the government. How can we help people understand that it should be left up to the individual and that the market is constantly in flux and can't be predicted by the government or controlled? How do we let people know, like, what do you think ideas are, are best to help convince others? When it comes to um, uh, sin taxes and smoking and things like that, I think we have to begin by affirming the obvious, which is uh, nothing that I write and nothing that uh, is said on this subject should be in any way uh, seen as countenancing smoking or alcohol or tobacco use, anything of that sort. It's obvious that it harms people over the long effect. Uh, it certainly uh, has a, a terminal effect on far too many people, including some in my own family. So that uh, there is no question that uh, we need to emphasize the negative health uh, uh, aspects of this so that people have a desire to change. Uh, but we have to understand that any policy that is rooted in the way people should behave instead of the way people actually behave is poor policy. And in terms of how do you uh, encourage the government to make that choice, I think that Americans and people across the transatlantic sphere have to be most jealous about guarding our liberties, our rights, and um, the freedom that our Constitution has given us. Thomas Jefferson said the, the price of uh, liberty is eternal vigilance, and far too often we're found sleeping on that night watch. Thank you very much for that, Father Ben Johnson. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. All right. This is Caroline Roberts for Radio Free Acton. Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and you are listening to Econ Quiz, the part of the show where we take one specific economic issue and we kind of digest it a little bit and boil it down into some more simple concepts. I'm here with Anne Bradley on the phone. Anne Bradley is an affiliate scholar of the Acton Institute and also a professor of econ. Thank you for being on the show today, Anne. Thank you, Carolyn, for having me. It's nice to be here. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the company Amazon. Um, recently, on September 15, Amazon revealed that they are opening a 1 million square foot warehouse in Detroit and hiring over 1,000 people. So, and I was wondering, some people are very excited about this opening and some are very worried. So a journalist in the Detroit Free Press says in an article that critics of Amazon, which sells books, clothing, electronics, and even groceries, are terrified that the online retailer is becoming too dominant and pulling traditional retailers out of business. And what is your opinion on this? Are they monopolizing the market a little bit too much? So this is such a great question, and I think it's very much in the hearts um, 
of people as they think about how the world is changing, uh, and in particular how Amazon seems to be getting bigger. Uh, and I, I certainly see it in the minds of my students in my classroom. So it's a great topic. I think, as with all things, when we apply the economic way of thinking to these questions, which is what I would recommend that we do if we want to get to kind of capital T truth, then we have to really um, be nuanced in our answer to the question. So the one thing I would say is that um, when we see, you know, you ask the question, is Amazon going to change the way we do retail? Uh, it is absolutely changing the way we do retail. And that's not a bad thing. That's innovation, technological change, this always happens. So, uh, you know, to kind of be uh, historic about it, think about the printing press. The printing press changed the way that people read. It changed literacy. It changed people's ability to consume literature. And now hundreds and hundreds of years later, you have Amazon, (laughs) the world's largest book retailer. So just think about that as the evolution of the way that we change the technology of selling different consumer products, including books. So yes, absolutely, they're changing the way we do business. And as an economist, what I would want to look at in all of these instances, technological change when it when it allows people to do more from less, uh, then it creates economic growth. And so it's something that we're really excited about uh, because it means lower consumer prices, lots of alternatives, and uh, better quality. So from that perspective, that's a good thing. Uh, and it's going to put other people out of business in this sense. It means that the old small bookshops, you know, that you might have seen on the corner uh, where they only sell books and nothing else, these, these might go away. Uh, but I think that's the scene. Uh, and that, that's what people get worried about. And economist uh, Bastiat tells us we have to look at the unseen, too. And what's the unseen? Well, the unseen is that that old bookshop, Um, does something else. And so technological change is not associated with higher levels of unemployment. And so that's the good news, which is that just because Amazon's getting bigger, it's able to do more, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to create high levels of employment. What it is going to mean is that it forces other firms and retailers to be better or to change what they do. Uh, and all of this, we need to re- remember, is driven by consumer choice. You know, consumers are the ones showing up to Amazon, uh, you know, on their laptops at night and filling their carts with things. The only other thing I would say is that what economists look for is uh, whether this is a result of dynamic market activity or kind of political favoritism. So sometimes when we see a major city that's trying to uh, lure a business there, Um, In some cases, it's done through tax credits and things like this. But in some cases, we might see political favoritism or kind of political bribes, what economists call rent-seeking. When you see that, you want to be worried about it because that's not Amazon going to Detroit because Detroit is a good place to go and it's going to create jobs. That's kind of maybe political cronyism. Now, you know, again, each – every situation requires us to look at that. Uh, and so I would say, in general, we we would say this kind of thing that Amazon is doing is great because it's providing lots of goods and ser- services to consumers that they want and need. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Anne. That was perfect. And I know that I definitely benefited from your explanation. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. This is Caroline Roberts for Radio Free Acton.
Hello, and welcome to Upstream, where we discuss popular culture and try to avoid politics as much as possible while still linking it to themes that are relevant to Acton listeners. And today I'm talking to Caroline Roberts, who is also my producer and a, a fine, upstanding young person of uh, literary bent. And we're going to be discussing the recent passing of Jerry Purnell and probably his uh, most famous literary effort, uh, which was a collaboration with Larry Niven. And uh, hello, Caroline. How are you? Hi, I'm doing very well. Good morning, Bruce. Thank you. And uh, so Jerry Purnell uh, was a the author of a novel called Oath of Fealty. He was actually a co-author of it with uh, Larry Nibbin. They co-wrote quite a few things together. Uh, this was a book that came out in 1981, which is when I first read it. And it, the, the novel gained a reputation as kind of a classic of libertarian fiction. And uh, it was compared to uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. And uh, Robert Heinlein is uh, kind of beloved by science fiction fans who are also of a libertarian bent. And it, it's pretty com common knowledge that uh, Purnell was a friend of maybe just an acquaintance, but uh, I do have the correspondence between the two of them with uh, Russell Kirk. And uh, so let's, let's, let's discuss that a little bit. Uh, I, I, I've written an essay on this for the Acton Power blog, and uh, I'll, I'll turn the mic over to you, Caroline. Here, let me hand it to you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm wondering, how did Russell Kirk and Pornell meet? And what was their relationship like? Okay. Um, Russell gave a speech at the University of Washington in 1962, and Purnell was a doctoral student there. Yeah, he was getting his doctorate in political science, and he had a conversation with, with Kirk after the speech, and Kirk invited him to write him a letter. And it took him about a year, but he, he finally did, and it's a really lengthy letter about six typewritten pages, uh, all compacted, and uh, wherein he expressed his dismay with what Kirk had already labeled the chirping sectaries of libertarianism, uh, individuals who uh, went too far in the direction, as Kirk would say, of John Stuart Mill. Uh, and you say in your essay, too, that in the letters that Purnell wrote to Kirk, that some of the frustrations he um, expressed have been basically embodied in what we see today. In what ways do you see that, you know, he would have almost prophesied what's going on presently? Well, uh there's there's a lot of uh, the, the the underlying theme as Theodore Sturgeon said in all good science fiction is the what if so uh, this is what uh, Purnell and Niven did in Oath of Fealty they said what if government continues to be the uh, the entirety of the safety net for individuals and uh, we, we and society. And so what happens is Los Angeles is basically devastated by crime and pollution and more crime and yet more pollution. So they uh, build a, a building, an arcology. So it's kind of a combination of, it's a portmanteau of uh, uh, architecture and ecology. So it's an enclosed system where uh, individuals 
can move about freely, but uh, they can remove themselves from Los Angeles. And th this kind of sets up a, a innate class war where the people who live in Todos Santos, which is the name of the arcology, go about their daily business while the people in Los Angeles, called Angelinos, are very um, hostile toward them. And uh, they think that uh, the arcology is taking up precious resources, and so they set out to have, um, who would have thunk it in 1981, militant economic ecologically-minded groups, an ecology army that uh, sets out to destroy uh, Todos Santos in its entirety, mm -hmm. uh, resorting to kidnapping, murder, and uh, sacrificing of, of innocent lives. Do you think that the question, what if, is kind of the main driving motif in Oath of Fealty then? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there, there's no uh, small amount of, of humor in it, too. He's poking fun at... Uh, uh, where he thinks, well, I say he, Purnell and Niven, are poking fun at the state of affairs as they existed when the book was written in 1981. And keep in mind that they actually sent this to Robert Heinlein, who uh, gave them notes and suggestions and whatnot, and then gave it his stamp of approval, and they dedicated the book to him. Um, and, and Heinlein does, does pretty much the same thing in, in some of his better works. Uh, you'll recall if you ever read The Door in December by Robert Heinlein, that uh, he, the main character is an inventor who comes up with a, a computer that does design work, and he calls it Drafting Dan. And this is way, way, way before computers were a daily thing, and it's way before uh, computer-assisted design, CAD CAM, and, and what have you. So, uh, and... Heinlein also wrote about using computers to manipulate heavy machinery from a distance. And uh, th th this is also part of Oath of Fealty, mm -hmm. and they actually give credit to Heinlein in, in the text of the novel. So it, it, it's fun to read, the, and especially it's fun to read from a historical perspective because these are things that are basically commonplace now. Mm -hmm. the, the, the one thing that uh, they don't anticipate is the internet and uh, and smartphones. Mm -hmm. Instead, what the uh, individuals uh, who can afford them get implants that allow them to interact with each other through a computer grid. So uh, th th these are you know implants that actually go into a person's brain and uh, say you have one and I have one and we can just talk to each other and no one else. It, it's like you know texting, but. It, uh, so they overthought this one and, and made it seem that, uh, you know, rather than just have something that, you know, basically most people can afford a, a smartphone now, or even if they can't afford them, they, they still have them. So obviously this book reflects a lot of um, libertarian ideas you've mentioned. I mean, obviously um, skepticism of government would be a huge drive of libertarian ideology. So how exactly do the characters, and you mentioned in your essay that they're especially archetypal. What kind of archetypes do we see in the characters that make this a libertarian classic? Well, um, when I say that they're archetypal characters, I, I was not being complimentary. I, I, I think that uh, the characters are kind of wooden and uh, 
interchangeable one with the other. The only thing that is different is their, their names. Uh, but one of the names of the characters, uh, more than likely the, the main character, is named Tony Rand. And it uh, doesn't take a English major to, to, to figure out where Rand comes from. And uh, he is essentially, Tony Rand is the, uh, the architect of sorts. For Anne yeah, well, for Howard Rourke, Anne Rand's uh, character mm-hmm. in uh, The Fountainhead. And uh, Toto Santos is, you know, for all practical purposes, a, a realization of Galt's Gulch from Atlas Shrugged. So, uh, and, and the people, you know, walk around, you know, you have a, a reporter, so you have a lot of um, wooden dialogue where people are uh, discussing what is going on with Toto Santos and what it represents and how things got the way they are in Los Angeles uh, at, in, in the unspecified date that this is. You know, one, one is to assume that it's in the, the near future, but I think it's basically just a, a way for the authors to cock a snook at the way things were going in 1980, 1981. You know, keep in mind, uh, this was probably written in the uh, final years of Jimmy Carter's administration when we had double-digit inflation, uh, followed by stagflation, uh, OPEC, and uh, we were worried about, you know, the environment. And uh, we were talking even then about peak oil that we had already reached it and that uh, we were going to be scrambling to find some other energy sources. So if this book may have resonated with a lot of um, tensions at the time that it was released, did it do pretty well? Um, yeah, actually it did. It's uh, considered to be one of the 100 best science fiction novels in um, one of the one of those lists yeah. that uh, are always coming out, you know, the best hairstyles of the 80s, the best science fiction novels of the 80s and, and what have you. Never made into a movie, though. Hmm. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure that a, a good screenwriter could uh, do something with the characters a little bit more uh, because uh, it, it really does come across as kind of wooden and uh, cardboardish, and uh, the, the, the love scenes in it are just cringe-inducing. Would you say that all, you know, even for its uh, maybe rigid character structure, that it's underpinned by a lot of um, of the thinkers that would have really influenced Neven and Pornell at the time. That that is the driving force that makes it better, or uh, at least that redeemed the bad qualities of its lack of character analysis. Well, I think there's a, always going to be a built-in audience for this type of science fiction. Uh, it, it's been a, a, a good better than a cottage industry. And Purnell had uh, another career. He was a, a, a writer. He ran his own think tank, and he worked for Boeing for a long time. Uh, he actually consulted the Reagan administration on Star Wars. And so he, he didn't need to do this, but uh, it, it was a, a lucrative hobby for him. I mean, for as lucrative as you can get being a... Uh, author of science fiction novels, and he also worked on the, a TV series called Babylon 5. So he was a, he was a busy fella. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, actually had a, uh, one of his sons was uh, Russell Kirk's godchild. Really? Yes. So was that as a result of him being close with Russell Kirk? How did that come about? Uh, 
I, I think he, well, he wrote a, in his first letter to Kirk, Purnell says that he um, uh, started out as a socialist, a diehard socialist, and he determined that he was going to read all of Kirk's books uh, in the order that they were written so that he could better refute them. And then at reading the books actually changed his mind, turned him all the way around. And so when he uh, wrote Kirk, Kirk wrote him back. They, they corresponded for many, many years and until Kirk's death in 1994. And uh, Kirk actually stayed at the Purnell household. And so they, they, they became, um, I don't know how close they were as friends, but they, they were regular friends. I mean, when you're Russell Kirk, you have many, many friends, and I don't know. A lot of connections. And a lot of connections, exactly. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for explaining that to me, Bruce. That was really good. Okay. Well, Caroline Roberts, thank you for, for being here to discuss the slumming it part of literature, as I like to put it. And uh, and I, by that, I don't mean it to be entirely pejorative, but uh, it was uh, certainly a pleasure talking to you about it. Yep. Thank you. Okay. For Upstream... I'm Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you next week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Radio Free Acton. want to thank all of you for joining us today on the podcast of the Acton Institute. Thanks to uh, Carolyn Roberts for handling so many of the interviewing duties today. Uh, thanks as well to our editor, Daniel Menjivar, for doing another great job on Radio Free Acton this week. And uh, thanks to all of our guests as well. Father Ben Johnson, senior editor here at the Acton Institute. You can find a lot of his writing over on the Acton Institute Power blog. Uh, also, Ann Bradley, our affiliate scholar, joined us for Econ Quiz. And as usual, Bruce Edward Walker did a fine job with his upstream segment. I uh, want to ask you to join us again on future editions of Radio Free Acton. If you've got friends uh, or colleagues who may not know about the work of Acton, but may be interested in helping out in the process of building a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles, well, send them over to acton.org. A great website, lots of content. The multimedia pages are outstanding. Uh, we've got plenty of stuff uh, for folks to look into uh, in terms of uh, Acton's history, ideas, beliefs, and our work. Uh, so Acton.org is the place to go for that. The Acton Power blog, also a great place to start. Blog.acton.org, great news, uh, information, commentary from an Acton perspective. Five days a week, Monday through Friday, you can find it all right there. Blog.acton.org. In the meantime, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we appreciate uh, your patronage of the Power Blog. We appreciate your patronage of Radio Free Acton. And uh, we look forward to talking to you once again here on Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Have a great day, everybody.